Hi, I'm Gavin Giovanoni, Professor of Neurology at Barts and London School of Medicine and Dentistry, and I'm doing another podcast on the uh, e link between Epstein-Barr virus uh, and multiple sclerosis. And I make no apologies uh, for repeating myself uh, because sometimes you need to repeat yourself to get the message across. Now, the reason why I'm doing this was I had an interview yesterday uh, as part of a uh, filming for a documentary on the causal role of EBV uh, in multiple sclerosis. And despite writing and talking about this issue extensively, uh, I was asked the pivotal question. Well, I was asked to state the pivotal questions or experiments that need to be done uh, to show that Epstein-Barr virus is the cause of multiple sclerosis. I was also asked who will do these studies and how much the research will cost. Um, I promised the uh, producer of the documentary that I'd put my thoughts down in writing and uh, hence this uh, MS selfie, which may be quite timely because it precedes ECRIMS and we'll see if anything uh, in, at ECRIMS next week is covering the EBV MS hypothesis. So the first critical question is, does Epstein-Barr virus vaccination uh, prevent infectious mononucleosis, and does that prevent or reduce the incidence of multiple sclerosis and other EBV-related disorders? So this is the primary uh, prevention study where we'll take a vaccine uh, uh, that's shown to prevent IM and then see what happens to the population. And to show that uh, the vaccine reduces the incidence of multiple sclerosis and other EBV-related disorders, we'd have to have national registries to show a reduction in, in uh, incidence. This is not good enough on its own, so I do think we need a parallel international policy initiative and a public education program to show to show that governments implement the vaccine when it gets developed. There's no point in having an effective vaccine that prevents infectious mononucleosis when the uh, National Health Service, for example, doesn't provide it and we don't have acceptance of the vaccine or the need for the vaccine so people take the vaccination. Uh, we've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic the incredible resistance to new vaccines and I think we need to actually educate the general public why an EBV vaccine is so important. And this is not only about multiple sclerosis, it's potentially about rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus erythematosus, other autoimmune diseases, and particularly the cancers that EBV causes. It causes Hodgkin's disease, it causes uh, other B-cell lymphomas, Burkitt's lymphoma, nasopharyngeal carcinoma, and the list goes on. So there are compelling reasons why we need a population-based strategy to prevent Epstein-Barr virus infection. The next question, and by the way, the uh, vaccine study will have to be done by big pharmaceutical companies, and they're going to co it will cost hundreds of millions of dollars to do that. The policy initiative may be uh, less costly. Uh, I'm just putting in. I'm just putting in that it'll cost about $2 million, but it may cost more. The policy initiative obviously required to do the research and produce the policy document and then obviously to disseminate it. And all this thing, all this takes time and money. And I have experience at doing that because I uh, chaired the steering committee that did the Brain Health Time Matters policy initiative. And that's been a long process trying to get the concepts through and adopted by the wider community. Question two, does treating EBV-associated infectious mononucleosis, or IM, with antivirals reduce the incidence of multiple sclerosis 
and potentially other EBV-related disorders. So this is not using a vaccine, this is using antivirals. And there are two ways you can do this. You can do it by repurposing existing antivirals that are already out there. And this is potentially quite cheap. It could be done by us. And this is one of our strategies. We want to test famcyclovir, a drug that's already out there for other herpes viruses, uh, as a treatment for IM. And we will be ho hopefully be able to start this uh, if, we've, if our trial uh, of uh, FAMV and MS patients to try and reduce salivary shedding works, then we'll have a compelling case to take this forward as a treatment for um, infectious mono. This is quite cheap. I mean, we could potentially uh, do a study like this, you know, at least a proof of concept study for about $2 million. Uh, it's expensive, but not that expensive when you think about how big the burden of IM is in the general population. And I think this point is it's not, no, no research now is easy to do, particularly clinical trials with all the regulatory requirements that, that are required for trials. Obviously, the second prong would be to get a, a new antiviral, so go from drug development through phase zero, one, et cetera. And this would need to be done by pharmaceuticals. And I, and I, I say this, though, because any drug development program is incredibly labor and cost-intensive. In, cost and the way we've configured drug development in the world, it's only really that big pharmaceutical companies or relatively big pharmaceutical companies with deep pockets can do this. And I am trying to stimulate the pharmaceutical industry to develop anti-EBV drugs, and some of them uh, are coming to the table, uh, or thinking about coming to the table uh, to treat multiple sclerosis and infectious mono. <clears throat> Again, once we've got a treatment for infectious mononucleosis and we are having it implemented and adopted at a population level, in other words, within the NHS, then we will need the registries again to see what happens to the incidence of uh, MS over the long term. And I say there is an analogy to this. So many decades ago, uh, an autoimmune disease of the heart called rheumatic fever, most of you would not have heard about rheumatic fever. It is triggered by a bacterial infection in the throat, the streptococcal infection, typically tonsillitis or pharyngitis. Um, and before we had antibiotics, if you got recurrent uh, streptococcal infection, it would often trigger autoimmune diseases. And one of them is rheumatic fever, where your immune system attacks the heart and causes damage to the heart. But once antibiotics emerged, the incidence plummeted of this, of this condition. And then there were uh, antibiotic prophylactic studies done where people who had one episode of rheumatic fever went on to long-term antibiotics, penicillin, for example, uh, preventing recurrences. And the disease now is very uncommon, rheumatic fever, in high-income or middle-income countries where antibiotics are commonly prescribed and given prophylactically. Tragically, we still get rheumatic fever in uh, low-income countries, uh, and the reason for that is really access to healthcare and people's inability to understand that they need to have their infections treated. <clears throat> and I'm hoping um, this analogy plays out in multiple sclerosis, that uh, by treating IM and reducing the incidence or the severity of infectious mono, uh, we'll prevent the processes that happen in infectious mono that trigger multiple sclerosis. So I'm pushing that as a really important strategy. It's difficult for me as a neurologist to do that type of research, simply because IM, infectious mono, is not a disease that comes to neurologists. It goes to general practitioners and A&E doctors. So I'm having to put a network of <clears throat> investigators in place to try and get a an IM pathway off the ground so we can test antivirals in infectious mononucleosis. The next big question is, 
does treating MS with anti-EBV therapies change the natural history of MS? In other words, are antiviral therapies disease-modifying treatments? And there are different strategies here. Um, so the question, uh, number one, is can we study existing MS disease-modifying therapies and show that their efficacy, their effectiveness is linked to anti-EBV effects? This is easier said than done. Um, we, off, we are unsure if we need to target EBV in the blood in the lymph nodes, the spleen, in the saliva, or even in the central nervous system. And nor do we have very good biomarkers to measure the biology of EBV. In other words, how um, the viral load, whether it's latent in these very hard to get at compartments, particularly the central nervous system. So um, I say this though, because almost all of our existing disease modifying therapies work against memory B cells. And that's the cell where the latent EBV virus resides. So I actually think uh, our current treatments work against Epstein-Barr virus. <clears throat> Another question is, do we need to target lytic infection or latent infection? So EBV is a herpes virus and they have two phases. They cause the acute infection, which is due to uh, 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 the virus replicating, which causes the cell to lie, and that's called lytic infection. But they can also lay dormant, hidden inside the cell, um, uh, and they have mechanisms of hijacking the cell's biology to hide themselves away from the immune system and lay dormant. And there are strategies to try and uh, target the uh, latent or dormant phase of the virus. Uh, and I think we haven't answered the question whether our antivirals need to target both phases of the virus. I personally am working on the premise that we need to target both the central and peripheral compartments and we also need antivirals that target both the latent and lytic cycles of the virus. Uh, and that is why um, um, we're going to need a new drug development happening. This is another reason why several pharmaceutical companies are developing immunotherapies to target EBV-infected cells, because immunotherapies uh, are based on the principle that if you boost your T-cell responses, your cellular responses to the virus, they traffic throughout the brain and the spinal cord and all over the body and will find and kill EBV-infected cells wherever they find them. And so uh, uh, there is quite a lot of activity in the immunotherapy space, mainly by pharmaceutical companies. And this is via the transfer of... Uh, EBV-specific T-cells. These can come from your own body, called autologous, or from, or from another cell bank, and those are allogeneic T-cells. Another one that I've just recently uh, just discussed are CAR T-cells. These are uh, engineered cells that target B-cells or they target EBV infection. And so these are just a few of the approaches that the immunotherapists are adopting. I must point out, though, that the assumption that we need to target latent EBV infection and that we have to target the central nervous system shouldn't really stop us from doing trials of antiviral agents that only work in the periphery and only target lytic infection. Um, because I think these experiments may be easier to do, uh, and the results of these studies will help us answer the question of how Epstein-Barr virus causes MS. You know, is it a peripherally triggered disease or is, is it running in the central nervous system? And so these uh, trials will give us important information of where the virus is uh, 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 doing its damage uh, and how we need to target it. So I think we need to keep all options open. And this is why we may need to uh, create a platform where we have um, and what I call an adaptive trial platform where you maybe have three arms and you can add arms onto it as new strategies become available so you don't give up. And I think it's important that if one trial is negative, you don't give up and you continue with other strategies, knowing 
exactly what your particular trial is uh, answering, which question it's answering. Uh, towards the end of the interview, I was asked which drug I would take forward now, okay, in 2022. And I think based on the literature and the data available to me, I would almost certainly do a trial of heart, highly active antiretroviral. So these are drugs that are licensed ready for HRV. And I would start the trial as soon as possible. Uh, and I think the price tag for a properly powered phase two trial done by academics like myself would be about five to $7 million. Um, that will be on the condition that we got one of the pharmaceutical companies who make HIV drugs to give us the drug for free because the costs of the drugs are quite uh, expensive and we'd need, we'd need matching placebos. And so you may ask the question, why am I talking about a heart? Well, I think there's much, there's quite a lot of anecdotal evidence out there that people with multiple sclerosis who have to start antiretrovirals because they've got HIV do extremely well. And you know, we started this off uh, more than a decade now ago by publishing a case of a young man who um, had multiple sclerosis, pretty active MS, then developed HIV, was put onto heart, and his MS went away. And since then, there's been a lot of any other case reports come out of people doing very well uh, on antiretrovirals as have MS. We also did epidemiological studies showing that people who have HIV are at a much reduced risk of getting MS. And we don't think that's due to the HIV virus. We think it's due to the fact that they're on highly active antiretrovirals long-term and that suppresses the Epstein-Barr virus that causes MS. Another thing about uh, HIV drugs is that they can also target the so-called endogenous retroviruses. So these are called HERVs, human endogenous retroviruses. These live in our genome and they get woken up uh, and they may also be involved in MS. And Epstein-Barr virus actually is one of the most potent triggers to wake up that virus from its dormant state. And so uh, one of the hypotheses is that EBV triggers HERVs to be uh, transcribed. <clears throat> Their proteins are toxic to uh, oligodendrocytes and nerve cells, and they they the mechanism of what's driving multiple sclerosis. And this is called the dual viral hypothesis. So EBVs upstream, uh, they trigger HERVs, to be transactivated and become active, and they cause the damage. Uh, so by suppressing EBV, you'll also suppress HERVs. Uh, and, and the good thing is a lot of these antiretrovirals uh, are, have quite broad antiviral activity, and they also suppress EBV activity. So this is why I would start this study as soon as possible. That's a repurposing of a licensed drug, so we know what a safety profile is. Um, they're relatively cheap now because some of these drugs are generic. <clears throat> we have a trial paradigm on how to test them, uh, and we could potentially uh, do some EBV biology, in, at least in the saliva and the peripheral blood, to show that these drugs are working against EBV, and then we'd have to use MRI scans to see if they are affecting the MS pathogenesis, in other words, targeting smoldering processes in the, in the uh, brains of people with multiple sclerosis. So I'd like your opinion on, on, on this post. Um, I know I've, I've written it for the director of this documentary, but I'd like your feedback as well. And do you think five to seven million is expensive? And would you support a study like this? Uh, and would you participate in such a study? And I'll leave it there. And just like to encourage uh, those who haven't subscribed yet or haven't become paying subscribers, to please do so if you can afford it. Um, we're using the money to uh, create the um, uh, uh, online website, which is looking very good. It's in beta mode now, and we're getting some people with MS to uh, at least test test write it and see and get some feedback before we open it up uh, for all of you. Thank you.